Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here today. And for those of you joining us at home, we're very glad you're joining us as well. By the way, if you've got any prayer requests while you're watching, feel free to include that in the comments um, there on Facebook or YouTube, wherever you may be watching. Well, you may not know where you're going, but you're always going to end up where you're meant to be. Isn't that kind of a comforting phrase? I saw that this past week. I was on Facebook, and I thought, man, I love that. You may not know where you're going, but you'll always end up where you're meant to be. But then a question popped in my head. Well, is that actually true? You know, whenever I was in my 20s and 30s, especially in my 20s, you know, you're in a lot of life transitions, you're moving around, you're trying new jobs out, you're probably dating, and I can remember struggling so much thinking, God, am I in the right job? Am I living in the right town? Am I dating the right person? And I remember churning through that. I remember having anxiety about these things. God, is this the right career path for me? You know, you've got so many choices these days when you're a 18, 19, 20-year-old about what you're going to do with the rest of your life. It's almost cruel sometimes. And I, would get my, I was afraid that if I made the wrong choice, I'd get myself out of the will of God. I wouldn't meet the right person. It would precipitate all these events that God never intended could disrupt the whole flow of the world. I didn't know. For some people, this is a real phobia. It actually has a name. It's called, and this is from WebMD, it's called decidophobia. <laughs> and it's defined this way. Decidophobia is the fear of making decisions, or more probably the fear of making mistakes. It is most commonly associated with a person who has a perfectionist thinking, style, and can often lead to what we call paralysis by analysis, which is the paradoxical outcome of not making any decisions at all. So is God really in charge of it all? And that leads me to this question I want to talk about this morning. What comfort can I draw from God's sovereignty? God's sovereignty being that power that God possesses over all of creation. It's a challenge for us, I believe, on many levels when we start thinking through this because issues arise from it. And the text we're going to look at today in 1 Samuel chapter 9 really brings to the surface that tension of what God ordains will happen and the actual events that precipitate and that we see happen in order for God's will to come to fruition. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 9. This will be a lengthy passage again. If it's, uh, if it's too much for you to stand up for this length of time, feel free to sit down. I'm going to read verses 1 through 20 of 1 Samuel chapter 9. And just watch the events sort of unfold as they do. 1 Samuel chapter 9, starting at verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorath, son of Aphi, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to 
Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with them, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man uh, went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. <clears throat> so they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry! He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cries come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? <clears throat> Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? You may be seated. So again, we're seeing the events unfolding among the people of Israel. God is going to give them a king. The king has been selected. The king has been brought to Samuel. And we're going to see the anointing of this king. But look at this meandering path that ends up with the king. These are people who are being forced to trust God in all things. Even though they've been warned about what's going to happen as a result of having a king, they wanted one anyway. And God's going to deliver. He's going to use this king in some good ways, but things aren't always going to go well. And you see here this tension of events. God willing something and then all the things that transpire as God will, God's will comes about. And this morning we see those movements of God's plans. Listening to, God, listening to God tell Samuel what will happen. 
and the unfolding of events. So I want to approach our subject this way this morning. First, I'd like to see, um, take note in the text about how God moves events and then people. And then I want to talk about how God moves you and I, and then answer that question, well, how should God's sovereignty, his providence over all creation, how should that impact me? Four ways we'll talk about there. So let's jump into this, and let's look at that first part, that God moves events. Now notice how this happens. So we're introduced to Saul. He's very handsome, which is totally unfair, but he is. He's very tall. He looks kingly from a good family. But then what happens? Starting at verse 3, things start getting wonky. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. Now it's like, well, what? What's up with the donkey chase all of a sudden? One minute at the end of the previous chapter, we're talking about getting a king, and now all of a sudden we're on a donkey chase, trying to figure out where did the lost donkeys go, and, and, and why? You know, honestly, I just think that God has the best sense of humor. <laughs> and look how he uses the donkey in this case. And these two they're sort of dense men. They're wandering around on this donkey hunt. And they come to a man of God, the seer. And why do they want to approach him? Well, maybe he can tell us where the donkeys went. I mean, he knows his stuff. Maybe he can tell us where the donkeys have gone to. But God had already spoken to Samuel to say, I'm going to deliver the king to you. And he told him that before the donkeys were ever lost. We don't know who let the donkeys out. We don't know how they got out. We don't know why they got out. But, but he knows that the donkeys are lost. So God is guiding the movements in these passages to bring Saul to Samuel. And he continues to guide events to this day. Now that is not an easy concept to grasp. Because we go about our day, right? People go about their days. They make decisions. Sometimes things happen. There may be cataclysmic events, earthquakes or volcanic eruptions. But then a whole lot of events are just precipitated by people doing their thing. And yet, even in seemingly random things happening, God is still in control. And I like the way Wayne Grudem states this. He says, from a human perspective, the casting of lots... Or, at modern, or its modern-day equivalent, the rolling of dice or flipping of a coin, is the most typical of random events that occur in the universe. But Scripture affirms that the outcome of such an event is from God. The lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is wholly from the Lord. See, this is why even in a democracy, when we vote for a leader, that leader is still from God. So God moves the events of those times and the events of our times. And he also moves people. He also moves people. We see it in the text today that God is moving Saul right along to the prophet Samuel. Now he's using lost donkeys, but he's also using this servant that had the money to pay the, the prophet. By the way, that shows their ignorance about a man of God who would not accept money, shouldn't accept money for simply stating that which is God has told him to say, but 
and nevertheless, they do it anyway. There's a big meal taking place for, about where to find the seer. And somehow God does all these things. And even though people are making decisions of their own volition and their own will, God is still moving in it. And we don't know how God does this. Um, he, contend, he, he combines his providential control with our choices. And by the way, I said it last week, I paid a lot of money to a seminary to get answers to how God does this. And they just shrugged their shoulders at me. They don't know. The scriptures don't tell us how these events are combined. Proverbs 16, 9. It says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. There was a general statement that John Piper said. There's several proverbs like this particular one that are, are reconciling the way in which people move and they, and they do their things. And, and Piper came to this conclusion, I believe uh, rightly so, that all those passages sweepingly say that everything that human beings do is, in the end, the will of God. Now, that is something to be wrestled with. How do we go about reconciling God's movement of people and events with the free will of man? Um, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, uh, Tozer, he attempts to reconcile these seemingly contradictory beliefs of God's sovereignty and man's free will. And he tells a story about an ocean liner, an ocean liner that's leaving New York City on its way to Liverpool, England. Now, people have <clears throat> they've made those decisions about where that ship is going to go, the path it's going to take, uh, that it is going to get there. Those in authority have made all those decisions. However, the people on the ship are, are in a different state. They are, on, they are on the boat. However, they're not in chains. They're freely moving about. They're eating what they want to eat. Uh, they're playing games and shuffleboard on the deck or whatever. However, they are going to arrive in Liverpool, England. Both freedom and sovereignty are present here, and they don't contradict. Tozer goes on to say, So it is, I believe, with man's freedom and the sovereignty of God, the mighty liner of God's sovereign design keeps its steady course over the sea of history. Tom Havistall said it so well that History is his story. God is moving people. And then guess who else God moves? God moves you. He moves you. He moves me. And he's got plans for us. How does he do that? He does it in his own mysterious kind of ways. He guided you here to be sitting here. A million things could have kept you from being here today, there's any number of sicknesses, car issues, home issues, family issues, and yet here you sit. How then does this sovereignty of God impact me personally? How does that happen? And what can I draw from this? Because I believe there's a great deal of comfort that we can draw from the sovereignty of God. I want to talk about four ways I believe this happens. Uh, the first thing is what it doesn't do, what the sovereignty of God doesn't do. The last three are what the sovereignty, that, or what the sovereignty of God does do. So we'll start out with the doesn't. 
First of all, it doesn't absolve responsibility. It doesn't absolve responsibility. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> you still have a responsibility to put your faith in Jesus Christ. When you heard the gospel, you responded. And it's clear from the Bible that people who deny Christ are doing so in willful disobedience. This comes through in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil, unbelieving heart that forsakes the living God. There's a sense in which we have that responsibility. And we'll be held responsible if we don't respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, I want to go back to Wayne Grudem, something he said about this. God has made us responsible for our actions, which have real and eternally significant results. <clears throat> we have this unique characteristic of God's creation, you and I. See, God made rocks to be hard, and they are hard. God made water to be wet, and water is wet. God made you and I to be responsible for our own actions. That's a unique characteristic that human beings have in creation, among that which has been created by God. We are responsible for our own actions. So it doesn't absolve us of our responsibility, the fact that God is sovereign and control of the events of man. And if we obey God, things will go well in this age and eternity. If we disobey, he's going to discipline and punish us. So it doesn't absolve you of your responsibility. Well, then, well, what does it do? And three things here. First of all, it does help you make decisions. It does help you make decisions. And it should help you make decisions because God is sovereign for Christians. What you decide will lead to your good. And this is better illustrated, I believe, than explained. Uh, Tim Keller uh, talks about when he first went to Redeemer Presbyterian Church. It was in New York. He'd been pastoring a small town and or a small church in, in Hopewell, Virginia, for a long time. And he said people were constantly asking him, Are you sure God has called you to start this new church in New York City? And his answer was always the same. No. He says, I think he did. I see an opportunity. I don't see anybody else taking the opportunity, but I can't be absolutely sure. I can be sure that I must not lie. That's in the Bible. I can be sure that I must not bow down to idols. That's in the Bible. I'm sure of a lot of things that are God's will, but as far as I know, I won't be sure that I'm called to plant a church until it actually happens. He said when people would persist saying, well, didn't you have peace about it, right? I mean, that's the ultimate sign of the right Christian decision, isn't it? He said no. He said it was too hard of a decision. It was too scary. But I know this. Guidance is as much something God does as it is something that he gives. <clears throat> he said, therefore, I knew that by selling my house and moving up here and signing a three-year lease, that if I failed to plant a church, God was preparing me for something I couldn't envision. And that is a truth you have to live with as a believer. You know, in the Old Testament, they had something called the Urim and the Thummim that the, whole, the high priest kept in his um, breastplate. A couple of rocks they'd use. They were black and white, and they, some combination of that would help Israel make decisions. 
But see, we don't use the Urim and the Thummim anymore because now we have the Holy Spirit. God is enabling us to make good decisions by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why we don't have to be wringing our hands as believers when we make decisions. Even if it doesn't turn out the way it's supposed to, the way you'd hope to, God will use that to take you to the next thing, whatever that is. He's always at work in our lives, our hearts, making us into the people he intends us to be. And that goes along with this next one. Uh, it does ease anxiety. It does ease anxiety. There's a psychology professor at Harvard, and he made this statement. His name is uh, Daniel Gilbert. He said, an uncertain future leaves us stranded in an unhappy present with nothing to do but wait. Our national gloom is real enough, but it isn't a matter of insufficient funds. It's a matter of insufficient certainty. See, this is how, and as far as I know, he's an unbeliever. This is how an unbeliever would approach the world. There is a certain amount of gloom. Well, why is that? Because everything is just uncertain. Everything is left to chance. We're just here by matter, and it's just matter plus time plus chance that has brought us to where we are. But for the Christian, it is not that way. We have a hope. We have a certainty. We know what's going to happen in the end. If there is no good and loving God guiding the universe to his perfect end, then you would have every reason to be sitting there in a complete state of anxiety. But that's not the case. God is using every circumstance to make us into the people he'd want us to be. So that should ease anxiety just in your approach to life. And then fourth, it does loosen control. It does loosen control. Particular, particularly the need to try and control others. Did Saul have to try and control events to become king? Did David have to try and control events to become king? God brought those things to pass. In his book, Fearless, Max Licato talks about God's sovereignty and our need for control. He talks about the, the power that fear possesses um, over us. He said it actually turns us into beastly people. He says fear turns us into control freaks. Four, fear at its center is a perceived loss of control. When life spins wildly, we grab for a component of life we can manage, our diet, the tidiness of our home, the armrest of a plane, or in many cases, people. The more insecure we feel, the meaner we become. We growl and bear our fangs. Why? Because we are bad in part, but also because we feel cornered. There was a pastor in Germany named Martin Neumoller, and he, he documents an extreme example of this. He was a German pastor who took a stand against Adolf Hitler when he first became dictator in 1933. And he stood at the back of the room, he was listening to Hitler, and then later when his wife asked him what he'd learned by listening to Hitler, he said this. He said, I discovered that Herr Hitler is a terribly frightened man and fear releases the tyrant within but with God the future is certain so find peace and comfort in God's control find peace and comfort in God's control I want to close with a <clears throat> this is an article it's a true story 
This appeared in Reader's Digest in 1949. Um, that on January 10th, 1948, just after the conclusion of World War II, a man named Marcel Sternberger got on a train in Brooklyn. And he went and visited a sick friend that morning, so he wasn't on his normal schedule. He usually take, took the 909 to his job, but he wasn't going to his job, so he got on a train later at noon. The train was so crowded, he looked around, he almost stepped back off. But as soon as he got on the train, somebody happened to pop up out of their seat, move off the train. So he went and he sat down in that seat. When he sat down, he happened to look over and noticed that the man sitting beside him was reading a newspaper that was written in Hungarian. He happened to be born in Hungary. So he asked the guy, well, do you mind if I just read the newspaper over your shoulder? The guy said he didn't mind. They ended up talking. They had about a half an hour ride, and they became acquainted. And then the man that he was sitting beside began to open up about his own tragic story. Remember, this was 1949. He said his name was Paskin. Uh, he'd been a law student when World War II started. He was eventually put into a labor battalion and sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was captured by the Russians, put to work burying the German dead. After the war, he covered hundreds of miles on foot. He went back to his hometown in Hungary, a place called Debrecen. And when he got there, he discovered his family was gone. Strangers had moved into the apartment that his family was living in. Then he went to his home apartment where he and his wife lived. Strangers were living there too. And he finally found some old friends who survived the war, and they informed, his, informed him his entire family was dead. The Nazis had taken them, him and his, them and his wife to Auschwitz. They were presumably killed in the gas chambers. The guy was stunned. And Hungary had just become like a big graveyard to him. So he decided he'd get out of Hungary. <clears throat> he headed west towards Paris, immigrated to the United States in 1947. And as that man, Marcel Sternberger, was hearing his story, there was something that struck him as very familiar to him. He listened and then he remembered why. He, re he had recently met a young woman at the home of some friends who had also been from Debrecen. She had been taken to Auschwitz, but then transferred to work in Germany in a munitions factory. All of her relatives had been killed in the gas chambers. And after she had been liberated by the Americans, she was brought to New York in the first boatload of displaced persons in 1946. He had been so moved by the story of this young lady that he decided to write down her name and her address and her phone number. He wanted to invite her to be part of his own family to help her with her own loneliness and grief. And, he, and this man Sternberger, he thought it was impossible that there could be a connection between these two people. But when he reached the station, he stayed on the train with his new friend. He asked as casually as possible, is your first name Bella? The man went pale. And he said, yes. How did you know? This man, Sternberger, he began fumbling for his address book, and he said, was your wife's name Maria? And he looked like he might faint, but this man, Paskin, Bella Paskin, said, yes, yes. He suggested they get off at the next station without explaining why. He took Paskin to a nearby phone booth, dialed the number, and after a long delay, he had Maria Paskin on the line. Sternberger reminded her of their recent chance meeting. She remembered him without explaining why. Sternberger asked Maria where she had lived in Debrecen before the war. She told him the address. 
Sternberger turned to Bell and said, did you and your wife live on such and such a street? Bella exclaimed, yes. He turned white as a sheet. He started trembling. Sternberger urged him to stay calm, but then explained that something miraculous was about to happen to him. He handed the phone to Bella and said, here, take this phone and talk to your wife. When he realized he was speaking with his wife, Maria, he broke into an uncontrollable sobbing. Sternberger sent him by a taxi to the address to be reunited to his wife. Now that article in Reader's Digest goes on to say that skeptical persons would no doubt attribute the events of that memorable afternoon to mere chance. But was it chance that made Sternberger suddenly decide to visit his sick friend? Take a subway line he'd never been on before. Was it chance that caused the man sitting by the door of the car to rush out just as Sternberger came in? Was it chance that caused Bella Paskin to be sitting beside Sternberger reading a Hungarian newspaper? Was it chance or did God ride the Brooklyn subway that afternoon? You know, God loves us too much to just leave us in a world that's left up to randomness and luck and chance. Please pray with me. Lord, we do not understand your ways. We do not understand how you do what you do. We don't understand why you do what you do. But Lord, we know that you love us. And because of that love, because of that love that you demonstrated for us in sending your own son to die for people who despise you, we can trust you in everything, in every event. Lord, you guide our steps. And God, I pray that we would seek to live in obedience to you. Even though it may be hard, even though it may not lead us down the path we thought it may. God, we can follow you in all things. We trust that you provide the leaders that you do. That you bring pandemics when you do. You will work it out to your good purposes. And God, I ask that you would, in the week to come, remind us of your sovereignty so that we wouldn't be overwhelmed with decisions that we face, with feelings of anxiety, with a need to control. Understanding that our own responsibility is still exists. Help us to remember that truth. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here today. And you're dismissed.